Welcome to the One Life Maps podcast. Here's your host and co-author of Listen to My Life, maps for recognizing and responding to God in my story, Sharon Swing. Hi, it's Sharon Swing again. I am your host, and I am so honored to be here today with Sybil Towner and Joan Kelly. And today we are going to have Sybil tell us her story. We're going to listen to her story in a way that... um, I hope will bless all of us in terms of helping us to understand something about life story work and why we get so excited about it along the way. So Sybil, um, your story didn't start in a way that, uh, that a lot of people, I don't know anybody whose story started like yours. (laughs) Where do you want to drop into this? Well, um, that's an interesting statement because uh, you are marking that every one of us is unique. So that's a beautiful uh, noticing. And and so there is a part of our stories that is unique, and there is a part of our stories that's very similar. So so when I, um, I've thought about my story for a long time, and... uh, and I've looked back on the themes and the threads that have run through it. Um, one of the pieces of work I did when I went back on it was I tried to name um, the eras of my life as chapters. Sort of what was the key um, word that described that phase of my life? And um, and I wouldn't have done this earlier, but again, I have the... Um, the gift of years, and so um, so when I think about Richard Rohr, who wrote Falling Upward, that he talks about the task of the first half of life is to find out what makes me significant, and uh, who will go with me, and how will I support myself. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and the other thing he talks about, he says early in life, we find ways to cope with the situations with which we've grown up. And I think those of us who are here in this podcast and those listening could reflect on their lives and just say that. So that, with that as a beginning, I think listen, as you're listening to me, listen to your own story. Because as I'm speaking, as we talk about in, in uh, three-way listening, some of what I'm going to say is going to bump into your story. And so that really, even on this podcast, is an invitation where God is inviting you to pay attention to your own story and and an invitation that he has for you. So um, this, uh, my notes that are in front of me, this sort of writing of my story came out of listening to the stories of Olympic athletes. I mean, who often had difficult experiences to getting where they got um, uh, to be uh, to be an Olympian and to be a gold medalist. And so I reflected on my own story and I said, really as I reflected on my own, it started out with a lack of permanency related to things, to places, and to many people. My mother was a consistent feature in that particular story. But one of the pictures, and I I didn't get this picture until 
really, uh, I was in my, um, till I was 70, but uh, my uncle in his 90s did a life story on our family. And in it was a picture of the birth announcement that my father made for me. And he was an architect and an artist. And I mean, it was, it was beautiful. And, and I just looked at it and I thought, I think he was delighted that I was born. <laughs> and, uh, awesome. and that he would have, um, had he had the opportunity, I think he would have loved me well. Yeah. And I don't know, I just received that um, as, um, as a beautiful gift. Um, and then I reflected back on myself and I said, you know, I think one of, I'm one of those hardy variety of plants. It kind of just grows anywhere, can kind of grow up through the rocks. And that I, I look at my story and I kind of bloomed where I was planted. Um, and, that, and I don't think that's everybody's kind of story, but, but it's mine. And so as I reflected on my life, the first five years, I was born in 1941. And so uh, those were when the winds of war were just um, uh, there. And uh, so say where you were. What? Say where you were. um, I was in uh, Stuttgart, Germany. So that's where I was born. And my mother had... um, decided that uh, she had studied in Europe and she met my father. They were both studying architecture and um, and married. And really, her family gave her her inheritance, came from a wealthy family, and just kind of said, you're, you're gone, you're done. And she invested it into the German railroads. And uh, so um, we had a home in Stuttgart, and so, um, anyway, that was the space where we found ourselves. A year later, my father had to go into the service. He was 27, and, um, and he was actually uh, killed in 1942 in April on the Russian front, which was a pretty brutal front of, uh, of the war. And then, and so my brother was born, and... My father did not even ever know about it, um, that he had been born. And so then in the midst of that, I don't know if it was, uh, I think it was probably 1944, our house was bombed. And so um, really there were a few things that were saved, but we lost almost everything. And the picture I have that was taken, photography was part of my mother's love, a little like you, Sharon. And so there we are at the train station with bedrolls, and my cousin, who I've seen since, gave me a teddy bear of his to uh, take on the journey. He was nine years old. And um, and so then we traveled for the next uh, probably year and a half or so until... Um, late 1945 when we wound up in a uh, uh, Paris uh, refugee camp. So you say you traveled, but actually you were running from war. Right. We just, um, my, it's interesting, after my father died, my mother really 
helped translate for the Americans. So we would get picked up uh, in a uh, in an American convoy and taken, and something I'd never known, but my mother's feet, I don't know what ours were, were just in terrible shape when she came to this country. And, um, you know, and as I say, I have no memories of all the places that we were or had to walk. But in my body, I carry the deprivation of food and um, also the uh, flight and fight that deals with your um, with your bowel movement and just that aspect of, of not just being in a safe place. So anyway, so that was the beginning. But I have pictures of myself, and I have a story that someone came and found me in 1988 and said, well, what you did is you went down into the courtyard of the Castle of the Irish, and you gathered children together and formed them into games. I said, well, I guess I must have bloomed where I was planted. In uh, the refugee camp. Yes. Yeah, I had, I mean, I... When had, you were like five. Yes. I had no memory of that. Um, but um, But I've seen... As I've looked at children and refugees and places, I've seen little ones taking care of little ones. Mm -hmm. You know, just doing, I mean, just having a heart to sort of do something. And so that was what was in me to kind of gather uh, children together. So then we finally got passage out of that refugee camp on a boat, put in the bottom of the boat, and with just what we had on, and uh, to come to America and to be met by my mother's mother and to go live in her home in Pennsylvania. And so... Um, Is that the home then that where your mother uh, grew up then? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, and so th- we were met at Ellis Island um, and uh, came in and tasted my first fruit. And anyway, it was... Um, again, I was pretty happy... I had the forlorn look, deep-set eyes, so did my brother. But um, some months later, I looked at a picture that was taken. I mean, there was light and life in my eyes and resilience. And so I look at those next five years of living with my grandmother, my aunt. So my grandmother was 63, my aunt was 75. Uh, and then my uncle and his wife and their three children, five, four, and just born. And my mother also was pregnant at the time, so she had another child. And um, so here we were, this family of three, and my mother was not well-loved by the family because of having gone to Germany, so she had to leave. And so she left and went to Cincinnati to complete her doctorate in German. And, uh, and so we lived with my grandmother for the next five years. So I just encapsulate those years as my grandmother. She loved us unconditionally. Uh, and the important thing she did is she took us to the church. And the people in the church did, as those of you listening would know what you do with children, you welcome them and uh, uh, and love them if they've been sick or in a hard place or whatever. And um, I responded to that. There were safe people, 
safe places. I was welcomed. and uh, But in that home, my uncle would not speak to us. And so I also got the gift of rejection. And, um, and I just, the way I learned, again, it was a coping mechanism, <coughs> <coughs> was how to walk around it and how to, how to survive in the midst of it without facing it face on. And um, again, I didn't reflect on that until actually in my 30s. When you say the gift of rejection, that's an interesting way to say something. What tell, Say more. Well, um, we all give gifts. Some of them are positive and some of them are negative. And I just say that out of the gifts that were given to Jesus when he was born. See, the innkeeper gave the stable, but Herod gave rejection. Mm. So, so we are always giving gifts. We just don't always know what they are. Okay. Had to interrupt your story there to, to ask that question since yeah. it's such an interesting phrase. Yeah, but I think what it did in me, it's one of those places where it created a longing, created a longing to belong. It actually, I think, created a longing for a father. Mm-hmm. And so then... Um, Uh, the next phase of my life, I sort of describe as responsibility. My mother did remarry, had a child uh, a year later. And, um, and so then uh, we moved to Cincinnati to be with her. And, uh, and I was so excited to have a dad. I mean, that just was um, somehow in my little eight, nine year old mind, that was, that was sort of going to be the right thing but that uh, father did not know how to be a dad and uh, and I think as I learn a little bit more about my mother's story she had been separated from us and somehow longed to get us together and so she probably married poorly and to do it mm-hmm. and very quickly had uh, three more children and then one that was stillborn So out of that period of my life, again, sort of blooming where you're planted, I took my brothers and sisters to the church that was just not quite a mile down the street, same denomination. My mother was a part of a small group there, but they were both introverts and didn't go to church. And so I just took my brothers and sisters. And the people there loved us. Now again, in reflecting on my story, began to see God kept finding me. He kept finding a place to announce that he was with me, mm-hmm. that he cared about me. It's beautiful. And, uh, and, and I needed to know that. Um, and so, um, so anyway, my brother and I would take a wagon. We did the shopping. I was the, uh, the oldest of six. My father was out of work. We my brother and I would work to help contribute to the income. People would bring food, some food to us. And so it was, it it was a time that is really, there are many people who are in places where 
there is someone out of work and there's little food, enough, but it's pretty bland. Bologna, bread, mayonnaise, and uh, not much of the green food groups um, in that. And how old were you at this point? Uh, This was between the time I was 9 and 16, Mm -hmm. 17, so. And what I, anyway, my home, again, was not a place that was safe. My father didn't know how to be with us, and he would rage in ways that were not understandable to us as children. So um, I just learned how to go around it, and I created a world outside our home and at the church and uh, at school. And I had a fabulous high school experience, and again, there was someone who just kind of had no idea how the person knew the principal of the school sort of did just a little looking out for me and I was offered Mm. some things that were uh, enjoyable and nice and um, and so then I graduated but something important happened in that season I was very involved in the church and I went to a conference uh, in a city and at this church we sang the song Be Thou My Vision and I mean that song I can old church sitting in it and God found me and I just responded I'm yours that's what I want I want you to be my vision Um, really take me I mean that became the movement of my life Mm -hmm. consciously and unconsciously Um, that that stayed with me and then I, I graduated from high school and uh, went off to college. And um, the first thing I did was find the church after I got my room arranged. And again, I think I was looking for home. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we're all looking for. And that was what felt like home to right. me. And, um, and so, uh, so some interesting things happened to me during those years. One of the things I did is I decided um, that I needed to leave home to uncover who I was. I just was, I couldn't be what my parents wanted me to be. I was a pretty strong extrovert, and I couldn't be what I thought I ought to be, which I didn't know what that was. And I sort of went through a crisis of faith, and which I think is very normal. And so... That aspect of just unpacking all of that. And so I was, again, afraid to tell my dad I was leaving. And he never, ever asked. But one thing I did in that period of time is I wrote a letter to my dad. And I thanked him for what he had tried to give me. And I chose now to count against him what he hadn't given Mm -hmm. me. And really, said up to that time, You know, I'd never known a father to say I love you or a man to say I love you. Never sat on anybody's lap. All the experiences that I have seen now in my adult years and cherish and believe are just valuable. And and I was kept from really a promiscuous lifestyle. 
I have no judgment on anyone who falls into that because that could very easily have been me. I, I was just, I wanted to be noticed. I, I wanted to be touched. I wanted to be encouraged. And, um, and I was just, you know, I was really kept from it. Mm. And so I just, I just feel a gratefulness for it. And I was dating Dick at the time. And, and so what I did is I went to college during the year, worked two jobs, worked at camps in the summer, spent a week or two at my grandmother's, and uh, then, um, then I graduated from college, and a week later I got married. So I, I figured out my housing. I mean, I, <laughs> you did. Yeah, I, I said, I, I've got to have a place to stay. I, I wasn't interested in staying on the street. Um, and, uh, and Dick and I chuckled that we have been married and we have had three marriages. But we really, in those early years of marriage, made up what we had missed. He had been raised by grandparents. I'd been raised by my grandmother. So there was a gap. And... Uh, Dick had stability. I brought nurture. I mean, it was a marriage made in heaven, at least for the first few years, <laughs> and, until I began to find my voice. And that's really um, another story uh, that uh, deals with Dick. But then, um, then I, I, um, I began to move into a spirit, a period of yearning of really yearning for more of God's love because what I'd done was I didn't think I was good enough. I felt there was a sense of unworthiness. So I was going to prove to God who I was Hmm. and I was going to accomplish X, Y, and Z. And really I accomplished a lot in college, but I didn't accomplish one or two things that I really wanted and so it took me to the chapel, and, and it took me to asking a prayer, God, do you know me better than I know myself? And I had the sense that he did, and I said, well, I'm ready to listen. And so it just opened up a whole new journey. And so when Dick and I, uh, after, we, um, uh, after we married and uh, were in that same town and then eventually went back to uh, uh, Cincinnati. But we had a child a year later, and then I had another child two years later. We were in Cincinnati. Dick was busy getting a doctorate, and uh, I was loving on children. And then my mother died in 1966 in April. And my stepfather died in August of that same year and left my five younger brothers and sisters. Mm. And my brother was out on his own, but he still needed a place to live on the weekends. And so my siblings were 13, 15, 16, and 18. And they, um, anyway, they became a part of our family legally. Um, wow. And we became their legal guardian. And so that, again, a hard, really hard place, but we knew it was a yes to God. Hmm. Nothing we expected. And what it did, it helped us find a home 
that would unpack the gift of hospitality mm-hmm. for me and unpack the gift and love of creation for Dick mm-hmm. and uh, unpack not just my brothers and sisters who would live in that home, but 60-some other people <laughs> who would... Come. Not all at the same time. No, no. There was a time <laughs> that there were 13. No. And Dick said, Sybil, enough. <laughs> I, I cannot, for three months, 13. So how old were you when you became guardians of your siblings? I was 25 and Dick was 28. And so there were seven children. So there were there there were eight total of us and my brother on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that um, uh, that I mean, you talk about exponential growth. I mean, you are just saying, Lord, what do we do next? Oh, and how do we negotiate this? And so um, um, my younger brother was undergoing kidney failure and deaf and autistic. And uh, my other um, siblings just came from places of uh, honestly not being well cared for. So just the things that you suffer in that kind of place. And uh, my sister trying to figure out her life. So it just became quite uh, quite a journey for us. And in the midst of that, again, I'm trying to do good for God. I heard someone speak, and I got it again, sort of like at 16, that it was about God's love for me. And I just heard it all over. And my expression, my behavioral expression at the church is I took every course that had the name of Jesus in it. <laughs> I, I, I just, I was, I was funny. I mean, I was in love with the love of God. <laughs> and uh, so, so the next part of that journey was just being equipped. And I wrote a letter to our church that was open that I wanted to be a part of a course that would study the Old and New Testament that would require 15 hours of study a week, a class once a week, and that you would commit to teaching following that to congregants. And uh, it was what I call my seminary education. We memorized over 600 concepts in the scriptures. We were tested. We, We just explored the whole journey from Genesis to Revelation. And I just think, again, that was God's placement. Uh, This was not about me. I mean, it was about me responding. Again, our idea of, of recognizing and responding, responding to that yearning and asking to be a part of it. And then the other thing that was going on at that time, I was working at a private girls' camp uh, for um, Jewish girls, and that director believed in me, believed in my gifts of leadership, and just encouraged their development. And so I went away every summer with our sons, and Dick got his doctoral work and a project on the house done, but it was seminal. I learned how to be 
speak non-Christianese language, and um, um, and I learned how to lead mm. because someone really believed in me. Again, I couldn't have known it, and that journey ended in a hard way, and that theme of rejection came through again, but I just stepped into it, and one of the things I realized, and it's the first time I'd actually been fired, um, and what was named was because of my being a Christian, but it was Mm -hmm. much deeper than that, and um, and I made a choice to bless. And in that choice of blessing, 25 years later, I went back to that camp for a reunion. And the new directors, the old director had died, met me and spoke with me. And he said, now I understand something about the spirit at this camp. Hmm. Because I used to do the Sunday services. And I would speak out of the Old Testament. And, um, and so I had the chance at the reunion to speak again and, and um, you know, just reconnect with a number of those folks. I mean, the, the irony of a German woman teaching in a Jewish camp the Old Testament, who's a Christian, in the whole picture of that, the just the layers of unique intersection of what was happening and the opportunity that that how old were you at that point um i started when i was 20 and i was there till i was 36 Mm. in the midst of having all these all these changes changes and siblings and so and i took my siblings they all worked there for a summer or two and uh, the camp director said bring them i'll find work for them and uh Hmm. So, um, anyway, uh, just embraced and met me where I was. Then the other thing that was just really key, I came in touch with the writing of Henrietta Mears. And Henrietta was the director of Christian education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. And she had been a chemistry teacher, single woman, never married. And she developed a... uh, um, a leadership, they wouldn't have called it leadership then, but a um, really a life in Christ formation for young people, also developed gospelite Christian ed materials, but her really critical work was with college young people, and she began the Christian Camp and Conference Center, Forest Home. And in um, and so I took on her goals. I mean, she, at distance, I didn't know her, but I was in that denomination. I knew people in it. And her influence up and down the coast of California, um, chaplain in the Senate, I mean, across the board, was incredible. I didn't realize how much of her I had taken in But what I was trying to do, because again, hidden was this sense of unworthiness in my life. And so I thought, well, I'll be her. Now, I didn't do that on a conscious level. Right. Because it was a part of who I was. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
it wasn't all of who I was. I was trying to do what she was doing. She was a single woman. I was a married woman cooking meals every night. And I was thinking, Henrietta, how did you... Look, this is not fair. And... Uh, uh, and, she also uh, didn't adapt yeah, all her siblings. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, I, that that was just a piece, but um, but she really equipped me. Then, back in 1977, mm-hmm. a pastor, or come in 76, a pastor came to our church, and he had come from California, Glendale Presbyterian. And he had sent many groups to Forest Home, knew of Henrietta. And when he and I talked and that, he said, you have got to start a camping ministry. And, uh, and I mean, it, it was when he came to me, it was just like, oh, my gosh, this is my I, this is my dream. And so um, so then for the next 15 years. From 1977, first summer was in 78 to 1992. Then I developed the Summer Ministries Program, um, which was really developing the staff. It was a leadership program to develop them, and we did it by doing camps. And every age was equipped and equipping. And um, so... um, that was an absolutely phenomenal piece. And at the end of that particular piece of, um, I mean, I didn't know it was the end, but there was a spot that opened and the only area of ministry that was not um, under my purview from zero to um, adulthood was the uh, youth ministry. And that position came open. Actually, Skip Holmes went uh, to bat for me. He was mm-hmm. the chairman of my committee. Oh my goodness. And uh, uh, and the powers to be said a woman cannot be a youth minister. And it was just like a, again, that motif of rejection. Because that's what I was doing at camp. I was working with men and women and I, it just didn't make sense to me. But I came in touch with myself. Mm-hmm. So I would say up to that point, I was almost uh, 50, that I was living as honestly as I knew how out of just trying to make life happen. And God blessed it in many ways. But now I was having to face myself in a new and deeper way. And I was really broken. And I knew enough to not talk with, really, there were probably two people who knew anything. No one, no one really knew what was going on. And so I went off to Gethsemane, spent a week in silence, took my Bible, took In the Name of Jesus by Henry Nouwen, took A Chance to Die by Amy Carmichael, and I did business with God. And again, he took me to the Stations of the Cross and reintroduced me yet one more time to his love. And this time, it came with convulsive tears and um, <coughs> and just, again, a deeper knowing. And then he took me out on a hillside, 
And uh, this is on 5,000 acres, so there's a lot of hillside to look <laughs> on. And, uh, and asked me the questions that he asked Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then when you were younger, you went where you wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Now that you are older, I will take you where you do not want to go. I will dress you. And for Peter, it meant the way he would die. For me, it was a really lethal blow to my ego and to just kind of managing my image and propping up that which I didn't think was worthwhile Mm -hmm. and that. And so um, I came out of that, and it was very shortly thereafter that we uh, came to Willow Creek. And uh, and he said to me, you can say yes to what someone asks you to do. Don't try to start anything. Hmm. And so that began a series of responding to someone else's vision and participating in that and Hmm. um, saying yes. And the other thing, don't do something alone, and which I had not done before either, but just reiterated, you know, that development of others. And so if I would teach, take someone with you Hmm. and uh, let that be a part of, you know, the mark of, um, of who you are. And so that run for almost 20 years began was the fruitfulness out of what I would call a part of the heartbeat of listen to my life the facing of yourself and the recognizing that God's at work and where he was at work was in some pretty (laughs) I mean broken dreams but that's that is what he chose where he chose to show himself up and say, are you willing? He said, the thing he said to me, he said, so my vision is still in you. Hmm. And remember, be thou my vision. But he said, you have localized it into a particular ministry. Are you willing to let me hmm. take you? So, uh, so that was the, you know, that, and in that, you know, um, you were a part of that. So you know a number of those stories. And then those things began to close off. And so just really to bring this to a closure, that now here it's 2018, I'm realizing there are some things that are ending. Hmm. And that's when we went came to the Springs, some things that were ending, and they're not easy. Um, sort of the closure to Transforming Center uh, sort of that old, a little bit of ego. Now, am, am I going to be totally forgotten? Well, you know, well, do I have a place anymore? I mean, just, um, and sometimes they don't even come up in those sort of sentences because you could be able to kind of look them in the face a little bit more, but they, they just, um, um, anyway, tap in to that old space of wanting to be uh, approved and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and affirmed. And so I'm seeing that at the end of each decade, beginning when I was age eight, 
something closed off. Hmm. Not by my doing. And when I leaned into it, then in the new decade, something new birthed. So there's a part of me that, again, this is the chance of looking at my story. This is fairly new. But because of having documented it and because of having pulled all the pieces out of the closet, I'm, I'm able to access it because God isn't finished with me. And he's saying, I want you to notice mm-hmm. because I'm about to do a new thing. Mm-hmm. So I need you to let go of some things. Right. And uh, so anyway, it. It, it's, this is my story thus far, and it's obviously not all of my story, but for this podcast, um, it is well enough, and uh, plenty of time has been given. I hope it taps in somewhere to your story, and what I believe is that God will not be finished with my story until he takes my hand Mm. to the other side. And then he's still not finished. I'll be living in another place Mm -hmm. and living out my story in ways that I don't have any idea about, Mm -hmm. but will be. Mm. You know, so one of the things I love about how you talked about this toward the end was noticing the patterns of closing at the end of a decade, but also then how you've come to understand that that's a rhythm, not something necessarily to be feared. Go ahead and grieve it well, but then it opens up your hands to accept what's new with a with a spirit of curiosity of, I yes. wonder what God's going to do next, which is, to me, part of your classic resilience and optimism that you carry with you. And... I just really appreciate that part of who you are and what a blessing that is to look over a lifetime story and um, have it be about God's story, just Mm -hmm. living it out through Sybil Mm. and how I made you to be. Thank you. And I just, I think it's an honor and a privilege to sit here firsthand and hear that story, which I've heard many times, but every single time there's just this other little piece I didn't know, this other little mm-hmm. nuance of God or of you, Sybil. And so thank you. I think the thing I'm walking away with is um, the sheer number of, I'll use the word rejections, but how they were reframed into invitations. You know, as you said, you were alluding to Sharon every single time and that you've taken the time to sit with your story enough to notice. And now there's kind of this expectation almost of, okay, well, I wonder what he's going to unfold here. Yes. There were so many pieces of it that uh, I wanted to stop and like insert some more detail from previous times Mm -hmm. I've heard because it's so good I didn't want people to miss it. So hopefully we'll be able to bring those forward at a future time. But what did it feel like for you to tell the story again today? Well, I felt very, um, uh, very received and accepted and... uh, and really, for those of you listening, I really felt like I was listened to 
in our uh, sound booth, <laughs> and uh, uh, and that it was real. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't uh, wasn't a prepared script, um, but it's what came forward today that I think God had me to speak and to notice, and I'm trusting that for those who listen, that it will be for them as well, something that will uh, prompt uh, someone else to say, I think that my story is worth exploring, and if I don't explore it, who will? So, and 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 I think the other thing I think about it's a Dan Allender statement, but many others have made it. But the Bible is seventy percent story, and um, and our stories don't explain themselves. This happened for this reason and that, and so the themes and patterns are always unfolding, and so that's what I'm noticing this time in looking at the decades. Mm-hmm. Huh. I mean, I thought maybe several decades, but I explored every decade. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, it's a yeah, it was a privilege to be listened to. Thank you. There's so much to be <coughs> appreciated in the midst of of hearing a person who has really dug in deep to their own story and the wisdom that we get to gain from listening to a life well lived. And um, that's one of the things I love about being on the listening side is just the kinds of of wisdom that we get from other people's stories uh, that help us to see our own story and help to give us courage and hope in ways that uh, that are not uh, common if you skim across the top and miss the depths. Well, and you see a glimpse of God. You're not going to see any other place. You know, it's yes. like that facet of the diamond. Each facet's a little different. And... Right. And every human soul is mm. is that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and and I would just say that, that this is the second part. The documenting is the first part. The self-reflection, self-awareness, and, and the willingness to invest uh, time in that which God thinks is incredibly valuable, which he knows every facet of your story, and he wants to he wants to show you where the pearls or the diamonds mm-hmm. are, and he wants to let you release those that you may have thought were pearls and diamonds that really were not and let them go. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that uh, that the work of being listened to just takes it another step. Right. So grateful. Uh, so grateful. So thank you all for listening today. Uh, we're going to close this off now and just welcome you uh, and invite you into this Listen to My Life journey if you haven't done it already. Um, actually, even if you have, do it again because your life is, <laughs> yes. is, is at a different spot and, now than it was and, then. Yes, and, and let me just say there, some, some of you have done it five years ago, six years ago, and you've just sort of looked at it, been there, done that, but really update it and re-look at it mm-hmm. again because... 
who you once were, you still are and still discovering. So yeah. um, so it's an ongoing, continuous work. Mm-hmm. Right. I just listened to someone who has been through Listen to My Life three times and just amazed at the additional layers of, right. of understanding and wisdom for the journey that she has mined out of her story and also this incredible hope that's springing um, in the midst of a very hard story. And uh, that's the kind of redemption and resurrection that not only was done for us sometime in history, but is alive for us now. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Listen in again next week. We'll uh, be happy to have you in on the conversation. Bye-bye. This podcast is sponsored by OneLifeMaps.com, creators of unique visual life mapping materials titled Listen to My Life, Maps for Recognizing and Responding to God in My Story. Go to OneLifeMaps.com to purchase your Listen to My Life portfolio of visual life maps. While you're there, check out our upcoming virtual coaching groups, live workshops, and options for you to facilitate the Listen to My Life experience with others. That's OneLifeMaps.com. O-N-E-L-I-F-E-M-A-P-S dot com. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. You can help support this podcast and the work of One Life Maps by supporting us on Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash onelifemaps to pledge $5 or more per month and get weekly audio meditations to help you recognize and respond to God in your story. Thank you for tuning in to the One Life Maps podcast. Until next time, make the most of this one life that you've been gifted.